Welcome, sonic archaeologists, peering back through the mists of time elapsed, looking for audio relics from a bygone sonic age. Suck in it, Grandad. Uh, you're listening to the podcast version of The Quietest Hour, thequietest.com's weekly radio program. For full versions of the programs, including all of the songs and music, please visit our website, thequietest.com forward slash radio. Thanks for listening. So I'm not quite sure why I get stuck with the bad luck, quieter sour weather, but there you go. My name is Luke Turner, and I'm here in my 1940s army shorts for a quietest hour special with the prolific gentleman Daniel O'Sullivan. You'll perhaps know him best as half of Grumbling Fur, whose psychedelically transportative pop record Preternaturals we released a couple of years back. Daniel's also a member of Ulva, has played in Sun, Athenor and Miracle, uh, released the brilliant album as uh, part half of Lanier Kea last year, and is now releasing a solo album called Veld via, via Tim Burgess's O Genesis label. And there's a Grumbling Fur collaborative album with Charlemagne Palestine. That's a lot of stuff, Daniel. Um, Indeed. How are you doing today? We've actually dressed the, exactly the same, except for I've got... Uh, we've both got white linen shirts on, and I'm wearing khaki shorts. Daniel's got khaki trousers. We pointed out the essential difference, though. The essential the difference foot- footwear. is I have a pair of uh, Lokes Brogues. Daniel's and wearing trainers. Bright blue and yellow Nikes. Dad, dad trainers. <laughs> when you're after. a dad, I'm telling you, it becomes essential. Running after young children. Comfortable footwear is a must. Okay. How, how are you doing? How's things? I'm very well. Yeah, I'm good. I'm enjoying... I mean, I'm not enjoying this. It's sweltering. It's too no. too much. But um, I'm not built for this. Um, but life is good. Yeah. So you've been playing a lot of gigs uh, with this is not this heat uh, this right. summer. Um, how how's that experience been? I, mean, I, I saw the early one at Cafe Otto. How's it all been evolving? Um, it's been getting stronger. And, you know, sort of expanding and contracting, you know, sometimes we play as six, sometimes we play as eight, sometimes as nine. Um, But it doesn't seem to affect the momentum. In fact, it seems to gather more as it goes along. Um, It's just incredible uh, for me because I'm just, it's such a dream gig, really. (laughs) You know, Um, I've, you know, always been, not always, but, you know, um, you know, there was a point where I was very intrigued by those records and now to be sort of in this strange sort of excavation of the material with Charles Hayward and Charles Bullen and all the other great musicians involved, it's just an amazing learning curve, you know. I think that excavation is a really interesting word because it's sort of, it, when I saw This Is Not This Heat at Cafe Otto and those early gigs, it did feel you kind of pulling stuff out of the past, but, past, but it was just so recontextualised. Mm. Everything had this weird life to it that perhaps even myself and others in the audience weren't expecting. Was that sort of similar for, for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a, it's incredibly nuanced, the music, and, you know, they're both... Both Charles Bullen and Charles Hayward um, are very um, 
specific although they're specific about different things you know sort of bullen is much more his head is much more into sort of syncopation um whereas i think hayward is more into the um holistic kind of aspect of like how the vocals are expressed and um and just symbolically what's coming forward and um it is excavation because those records there's so much kind of submerged in the background you know it's a very sort of dense textured sound so you know looking at it all under the microscope and really seeing what's going on harmonically and trying to sort of orchestrate that with the group we have such a treat you know Great. Is there going to be... I mean, I, I was really looking forward to seeing you play at Saver's Milk. Of course, that never happened, which we were gutted about. Mm. Is, is, it, is it an ongoing... Is there life still... In this, this heat? Is, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, keep, yeah, yeah. Keep, keep motoring on. Oh, I think so. I think so. Um, we should at least play the entire world once, I think. <laughs> um. <laughs> the world, the entire world needs, yeah, yeah. needs it at least once. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know if we'll make it to, you know, Rajasthan or whatever, but, you know, that'd be cool. Okay, well, that's great. Well, we're going to start off musically with uh, one of my favourite, This Heat, tracks. We're going to play Cenotaph from Deceit. That was Cenotaph by This Heat. Um, so you work with Charles Bullen as, as with Grumbling Fur. Yeah. What, what what is it about Charles that? You, what, how did that happen? Why and you know that kind of relationship from him collaborating with Grumbling, Grumbling Fur to you working with him on the, This Is Not This Heat. How did that work out? Well, I think it stemmed from you know I was following a bit of a breadcrumb trail with This Heat. You know, and I'd heard the Life Tones material and. Um, you know, which I thought was very curious. And then obviously hearing Gareth's Flaming Tunes material as well. And hearing three sort of very unique voices um, and hearing specifically what elements they kind of brought to this heat, you know. Um, And so I was just sort of interested in that alchemy and uh, managed to sort of locate Charles. He was doing a gig with his new group, Ground. Mm. And... um, met him and um and you know convinced him to come to tower gardens and record with me and alex um which was uh which was lovely i mean he's a yeah i mean he's a a really interesting guy you know he's got a really vast encyclopedic knowledge of music you know he's into trans categorical that's his thing what's, that's like that's like his dj name trans categorical <laughs> and hayward is um simultaneous yeah which in a way is the same but different (laughs) yeah that's quite that Um, makes sense doesn't it (laughs) yeah (laughs) they're both together and yeah 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 yeah. their their destinies are completely intertwined although often i think they they wish that wasn't the case (laughs) (laughs) but we're we're all getting on great so great yeah so what 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 events do you have over the summer coming up we have um off festival in katowice in poland soon and um we've already played primavera donal kilby uh rewire mm. a few club shows um 
There's other things that are coming up that haven't been announced yet. I don't think I'm at liberty quite yet to say what they are, but um, there's plenty of things coming up and probably next year will be a busier period for, for the group. Oh, great. Mm. Might there be some recordings? Uh, that's up in the air, but I would say probably not. Probably not. It's gonna... Probably not. I think this is, this is about recital in yeah. a way. Um, excavation yeah, excavation we, excavation we is a better word than recital yeah. <laughs> yeah recital god that's the wrong word completely <laughs> although it kind of felt like that when we played the Barbican you know I was so aware of the form of it all and, and the context and the sort of seated polite environment you know yeah. but it sort of brought something out that I mean it was just very on rock and roll you know <laughs> um, and there's been other occasions where it's been quite sort of wild and there's been a lot of symbiosis and we was um, like that at Cafe Otto. Yeah. I think yeah. that was, the atmosphere was fantastic. And, you know, yeah. I, I had a dance. I'm not sure about the kind of row of miserable Watsits who always sit at the front, but <laughs> I was having a very <laughs> nice early. time. Getting early and get your table. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And that piece, Cenotaph, that is uh, such a great moment in the set. You know, there's that thing about when the, 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 the sign becomes the things that it signifies, you know, like the cenotaph. It is this sort of monumental thing, like right in the center of the set. Um, and it's really interesting because I'm playing the bass on it and singing, but the bass part, because I think Gareth wrote all the sort of instrumental sections. And it's like this strange sort of dance, you know, it's like the fingers move in this sort of, it's almost like that came first rather than the notes, you know, mm. because the melody is quite sort of odd anyway, you know. But I realized after learning the part that it's to do with this sort of dance on the bass, you know, it's this sort of palindromic shape that he's creating. And then obviously he, he then later on went and studied Katakali uh, dance in India. So I could really feel his energy in the composition somehow that's That's yeah. th and that thing again about the sign becoming the thing that it signifies you know like this thing becoming manifest you know mm. um that happens a lot with this heat yeah um look very uncanny group really yeah yeah and, and that sort of extends to the i suppose to the, and you, you feel the audience picking that up do you think yeah yeah I, well i think if you look deeply enough yeah for sure um and you know there's so many things so many themes which are completely relevant today you know that sort of and also that fusing of quite sort of archaic ideas with really sort of almost sort of sci-fi kind of mm. post-nuclear landscape you know all those things being smashed up together with the un the unease on all those records is there's something i really pick up on yeah a sense of an uncanny unease yeah, you know, it's, it's, yeah. It's not just kind of, uh, you know. No, no. It's, it's a really. It's something. It's something kind of primal, maybe something kind of eternal, like something that's sort of just ongoing. Mm. You know, like the fear of war. Um, I mean, that song "Cenotaph." There is actually a. It, the lyrics read like sort of world World War One poetry in a way. You know, you know, poppies of red. You know, all this yeah. kind of. There is actually a. Uh, a poem called the cenotaph from that from that era right okay um, i think but, we have a, we have a quietest piece somewhere on the archives that looks at this heat along those lines oh really okay so listeners yeah. have a have a google <laughs> you might find it who knows with yeah. our 
<laughs> with our back end. Okay, yeah. we're going to move on now to Peter Jeffries. Yeah. Uh, Catherine, would you please play Domestica? can say will the world turn cold holding an ice age that was Peter Jeffries and Domestica from the last great challenge in the dull world and it's quite an aptly named record I couldn't tell whether the background sounds were Pentonville Road going past the people in the kitchen here it sort of all blend it all blends in when I was listening to that mm. and I've not heard that before what can you tell us about that Daniel um well he is a sort of a you know a New Zealand uh kind of outsider musician um he was in a band called some kind of punishment with his brother um and uh I think Alex Tucker introduced me to it because he's the he's the real New Zealand aficionado. He's the, he's the buff Alex from Grumbling Fur. He he knows the he New loves, Zealand he stuff. He loves New Zealand. Yeah. I think he feels very sort of like you know genetically coded into <laughs> New Zealand. You know, not just because Lord of the Rings was filmed there. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I just I, I really like that it's a very small private world that you're hearing, and that track Domestica really reminds me of. Um, working at Tower Gardens and particularly making that track The Hound off Glen Astra which mm. was just sort of all foley sounds of the kettle and um, you know just singing bowls and objects around the house um, it really sort of you know sort of keys you into this sort of small you know kind of domestic environment um, that I don't know it's sort of it's it's a real sort of break from all of the sort of fuzzy pop and sort of punky sounds on that record it's a real sort of special moment you know um and it's like a sort of a it's like a sort of wabby sabby do you know the do you know what wabby sabby no, is a wabby sabby it's like a japanese aesthetics thing like a something an object that is supposed to evoke transience or impermanence right. you know like a, an old chipped mug or something like that you know um that you keep you know because of what it represents that mm. it's it's like that and a lot of the lyrics in that song are kind of you know pertain to that as well that you know those who speak know the least while the rest know best you yeah know? it's sort of classic yeah. it's like lao tzu or something you know <laughs> um in this uh, lo-fi new zealand pop context you know yeah no, yeah, it's fine. special. Because I was I wanted to ask about the um, that was this, this question. Um, the song he immediately made me think about was Tower Gardens and sort of the Lanny Care record and the mm-hmm. the Grumbling Fur record and all the work that you you did in that amazing house. That for, if our listeners, some people might not know about it, was a place in Tottenham in North London in on a arts and crafts estate, one four seven Tower Gardens Road. And it was everywhere around was these sort of each house was slightly different, wasn't it? Um, it's, mm. They were kind of nicely designed, but you went into Tower Gardens and it was a different universe, really. And That's it had right. a, this beautiful garden that the artist mm. Ian Johnson, who sort of looked after the house, had planted with all these wonderful healing mm. plants. And mm. inside, it was all dark wood, and it was it was a very magical space, and that very much shaped a lot of your work for a long time. Yeah, that's right. It was a you know, I used to think of it as like an island with an invisible moat going around it, you know. And when you cross the threshold, you're in this 
you know, beautiful, energetic space, you know, where it was so easy to work. You mm. know? I mean, partially because you were so cut off, you felt very cut off. But I, I guess part of the feeling of being cut off was because you were inside such a sort of alien environment, you know, uh, you know, as you say, sort of full of Ian's, um, you know, his his strange affinities with these objects and these paintings and all the things he made and all the things he planted, you know, things springing up every year. Oh, my God, he planted peonies, you know. Oh, there's a bay tree at the back. Yeah. You, you can't get to it, though, you know. Um, yeah, and, and just that that idea of found foliage as well, just finding things, you know, things tucked away in corners, mm. you know. I'm, attra- I'm always, always been attracted to that as well, you know, not just in houses, but just everywhere in the world and in sound and culture, you know, something that's kind of overlooked, you know, and then you sort of find it and you dust it off and you realize it's this really beautiful, precious thing that sort of has some kind of deep resonance, you know. Um, yeah, something about treasure hunting, grail yeah, seeking that's a, that's a, you know that's a good way of i think he it. was a bit of a grail seeker yeah ian yeah absolutely how has yeah. it been though sort of since ian passed away and then the house is that house is gone and then you've been creating outside of that environment was that an, a, a difficult adjustment for you yeah yeah you know i was i was i was concerned you know there is always that fear that you know where's my spark you know yeah. <laughs> do i do I have it? Can I summon it internally? Or is it a lot to do with my environment, you know? And it is a lot to do with my environment, but I've found a great new space that's also a bit of a weird suburban doll's house. Um, <laughs> and yeah, uh, producing a lot of work there. Um, I miss Tower Gardens, you know, um, but I miss Ian mainly. And I think of the house when I think of him. Um you know he left traces of himself all over the place you know in you know all over spain he had this beautiful you know um bit of land that he was turning into a agroforestry school and sort of permacultural community which is now being managed by his partner Mikel. um and you know his whole kind of northern heritage as well cumbria and i always think of um you know uh castle rig you know, which is one of his favourite uh, megalithic sites, and actually where his ashes were scattered, in part. We had mm. to scatter them in a few places. <laughs> That's the thing. He was so multiverse. He was all over the place. You know, um, but uh, yeah. But you know, I I did a lot of work on on um, myself in his passing. You know, like I sort of saw his death as something, as an opportunity to embrace um, a kind of a freedom and a, a, a sort of a and a, a feeling of infinity, mm. you know. Um, so it really became something that's actually, it became a, a muse, you know, really, you know. Um, he was a muse while he was alive and now he's a muse in, in, in death, you know, yeah. so. Um, did that did that influence Veld at all? Yeah, I mean, Veld was made generally speaking while he was around and while i was in the house um i think i did some final touches uh after the fact but um yeah that was pretty much the last five or six years uh intermittently working intermittently in between projects you mm. know whenever i had sort of time to get on with my own thing because it's you I mean, that's interesting with your you're such a busy collaborator did 
did this record sort of get a little bit a lot of people would always want to focus on their own work but you've you know this this is finally out despite everything else almost yeah and I think there's something about that sort of maybe not you know uh, or at least for me um, maybe I don't always put the emphasis on my own stuff maybe that's partly out of a kind of a vulnerability or you know just not having that initial sort of sounding board to know if it's good or if it's mm. uh, relevant or, or whatever um, but you know, everything I pretty much made on Veld I felt very good about you know and, and I was really really caught up you know I was in a state of a kind of ecstatic state when I was composing a lot of that stuff um, so you know hearing it back now I still have that feeling from it although it's distant you know I've sort of certainly moved on from it a lot of the material is quite old you know the swimmer sabotage mm. devices those songs feel really old you know um, but um, yeah okay um, we're going to listen to some Ravel uh, oh. now uh, Catherine could you play Ravel please So this is the quietest hour with Daniel O'Sullivan, who has brought in, as he describes it, air conditioning music uh, for us to listen to today uh, on this quietest hour special. So when when did you first encounter Ravel, and is it the sort of simplicity of this this piece yeah, that you, yeah, you're into? It, yeah, partially. Although it's not that simple. I mean, he he was a bit of a taskmaster by all accounts and he could be very hard on concert pianists that you know misinterpreted right particularly this piece of music um which is supposed to be a kind of slow processional dance a kind of nostalgia for the old spanish aristo customs you know mm. you know the title i don't think really refers to a dead princess i think it's just an evocative title that sort of sounds a bit like a Velasquez painting or something like that. Wasn't the candle of the wind of its day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> um, but he said he said um, that he was dreaming of a music whose form was so free it would sound improvised, like um, pages torn out of a sketchbook mm. for this piece. Well, that's something um, I think could apply to some of what you do. Was that fair? To say? Well, I like I like things to sound. Um, sort of like uh, inevitable, although unexpected. Mm. You know, um, it's it's yeah. I mean, and I think the way to do that is to encompass both worlds. You know, to sort of to improvise and to compose, and sometimes those two things sort of fuse together. You know, um, they they always do in my case. Um, but um, yeah, this Ravel piece. I think I think I attempted to play it when I was quite a lot younger, having piano lessons and stuff. I remember my piano teacher coming down quite hard on me as well. Really? <laughs> you know. <laughs> Apparently, Ravel said to a uh, some pianist of the time, "It's supposed to be um, 
music for a dead princess, not dead music for a princess. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Just imagine. Um, yeah, but yeah, gorgeous, gorgeous, lilting, nuanced piece. Yeah, and sort of nostalgic. Nostalgia is a weird one, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not. It's such a natural instinct, but one I always try and be really wary of and yeah. sort of suppress almost because I think it, mm. it's it's too often a dangerous instinct and a re- regressive one. Critics are very down on nostalgia, I've noticed, but artists often just throw themselves into it. You know, you have to be wary of it, though. You're right because you know there's that. It's very easy to become derivative, I suppose. You know? mm. Um. But when you're sort of nostalgic for something really personal, I think it's different because it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the zeitgeist or, you know. No, but I, I, some, I worry that it's it's sort of putting a limit on your present and your future. If you're kind of dreaming of this past that probably you're not quite remembering correctly. Yeah, I do too much of that. Yeah. <laughs> I do far too much. What, of that. what are you most nostalgic <laughs> for? My childhood. Really? Yeah, nice. yeah, 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 yeah. Fully, yeah, um, yeah. Just you know that just being in that sort of dreamy pre-concept place. You know, before you're thinking mm. of the world in terms of the logos. You know, you're just experiencing what it is as a vibration, as a frequency. You know. And, um, but you can never go back there. For that. So you, why you, you should well, be nostalgic? Well, you sort of can. You sort of can. Just take lots of drugs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not condoning that, listeners. <laughs> yes, yeah, so after my uh, advice to you know, I won't say what my medical advice the other week. We're not condoning uh, drug the, use. The right here kind of drugs. drugs. Tease a drug, you know. <laughs> okay, um, we're going to listen to now. You might have to help me with some pronunciation here, Daniel. Liadan. Li- li- oh, uh, Liadan. Yes, mm. Liadan. Yeah, this is, um, and the title is uh, Auron Vuinche. Well, I wouldn't have pronounced it like that, so I'm very glad you did. <laughs> I got um, some help from an Irish cousin. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine, could you take it away, please? So that was absolutely fantastic, Daniel. Uh, you'll have to say the name of the song again for me, please. Um, Vuinche. Uh, well, that's that's the place. It's called Auron Vuinche, which is the song of Vuinche. Right. Is, 
somewhere in Galway, I think. Okay. Um, but it's a song, it's a Shan Nose song. Shan Nose is usually a sort of highly ornamented, unaccompanied vocal music, um, singing traditional, you know, Irish songs. Um, but I think more, you know, this group, Leodan, um, which is an all-female singing group, I think, you know, they, they're a bit more contemporary. They orchestrate these songs but that's just i think that's so well done so beautiful mm. you know? um but the song is um is a sort of a woman on her deathbed talking about what she wanted for her funeral arrangements oh, right. <laughs> um which is a very sort of a advanced kind of mature attitude towards death you know and it's not something that's all that common no, yeah, people are sort of running fast in the other direction these days, you know. Um, that, for me, has more in common with like Buddhist or sort of Taoist ideas towards death, you know. Some of the lyrics here, like, um, is it okay if I read some? some yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. So, um, if I were three leagues out at sea or on mountains far from home, without any living thing near me but the green fern and the heather, the snow being blown down on me and the wind snatching it off again. And I were to be talking to my fair Timon, and I would not find the night long. Dear Virgin Mary, what will I do? This winter is coming on cold. And dear Virgin Mary, what will this house do and all that are in it? Wasn't it young, my darling, that you went during a grand time, at a time when the cuckoo was playing a tune and every green leaf was growing? If I have my children home with me the night that I will die, they will wake me in mighty style three nights and three days. There will be fine clay pipes and kegs that are full. And there will be three mountainy women to keen me when I'm laid out. And cut my coffin out for me from the choicest, brightest boards. And if Sean Hines is in Vuinche, let it be made by his hand. Let my cap and my ribbon be inside it and be placed stylishly on my head. And Big Poor Dean will take me to Vuinche, for rough will be the day. And as I go west, by Inche, gone Neve, let the flag be on the mast. Oh, do not bury me in Litcher Kaili, for it's not where my people are. But bring me west to Vuinche, to the place where I will be mourned aloud. The lights will be on the dunes, and I will not be lonely there. That's fantastic, isn't it? What a lovely, <laughs> lovely song. I mean, how many it's sort of songs about funeral arrangements <laughs> it's incredible isn't it yeah i love the way that she wants a particular man to make her yeah coffin as well yeah that's yeah, it's yeah. beautiful it's fine do you know do you know when this did they write this song or is it a it's a traditional it's a traditional song yeah. it's an old old song an ancient song yeah yeah, yeah. and does that sort of connect with a, a, your interest in spiritual music that one which it's yeah. quite a long-standing interest in these things yeah yeah. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, particularly as that is a very, um, as, a, as I was saying, it shows a sort of a practical maturity, you know, towards the idea of death, you know. Um, and it's so poetic. I don't think death, you know, sometimes the problem um, is often people get very attached to, um, like, in, like say in scripture, you know, in liturgy or whatever, people get very attached to the metaphor you know they read it as prose rather than poetry you know mm. and mm. death for me always represents a potentially a new beginning you know like um an opportunity to sort of shed your infantile ego and 
move on to a, a new life expanded you know new new possibilities new frontiers yeah and is it was that something that the Lanny Akea album sort of captured about something I took from it pers- per, on a personal level yeah absolutely yeah although um that was a case of not consciously deciding on anything that was just in the middle of a great grief you know just pouring pouring it out into some sort of vessel you know um and um didn't really make any sort of aesthetic decisions i suppose massimo he brings his big granular distorted weight to it you know Mm. uh and you know and i wrote some words but i didn't think about what they were really until after afterwards um but yeah i mean usually the best for me the the most kind of resonant music comes from that state where you're not really it's not all about the head it's about the head and the heart combined Mm. you know um so yeah okay Thank you, Daniel. Mm-hmm. Um, next track you've brought us is from Van Dyke Parks, and uh, this is the Old Golden from Song Cycle. So that was Van Dyke Parks. Uh, Daniel O'Sullivan, you said while well, we were listening to that, he's so anti-rock, Van Dyke Parks. Mm. What, what do you, what do you mm. mean by that? Well, the, just that although, you know, he's one of those guys, he's like the hidden hand in 60s music. You know, he had so much to do with a lot of music, obviously, you know, Brian Wilson and, and you know, his affiliations there. But he was like a session pianist working with, I don't know, like the Birds and Tim Buckley and people like that, you know. Um but yet his he he always seemed to sort of interject his kind of mutant spin on things you know which is very much about reframing i think like american idioms you know that that maybe rock rock sort of came from those idioms but he's referencing something further back you know like um uh bluegrass and you know and uh ragtime dixie music and all this but giving it this you know he's a surrealist basically he's like mutating the american landscape you know and and reforging it and and making a sort of a pop collage out mm. of it you know um and it was the um referring to my notes now mm-hmm. the uh the most expensive album ever produced at the time oh was it yeah <laughs> i just think <laughs> i just laugh when i hear van dyke parks because i can just imagine him be- being so persuasive because he's obviously so incredibly intelligent but you know, you can imagine the sort of the Warner Brothers when they're listening to this thinking, how on earth are we going to sell it? You know, yeah. um, apparently he did go into Warner Brothers and he hadn't decided on the title. I think he called it Looney Tunes originally, but then they were all listening back and the executive at Warner Brothers was listening back and he was like, um, maybe we should call it Song Cycle. And the guy from Warner Brothers said, um, yeah, but where are the songs <laughs> <laughs> amazing and I know you're saying about the sort of surrealism of that and there's a playfulness I really take from it and then you know that's something I, I, I very much get from Grumbling Fur and then your work with Charlemagne Palestine there's a there's a something very playful 
with that was is that is that something you get you get from that collaboration would you say with Charlemagne yeah, yeah. oh yeah 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 I mean that's that's big part of you know the attraction really I think is um is that he never stopped playing you know um I mean it's serious but is it serious really that's the thing you know like music I mean it's um it's all about that it's all about sort of indulging in play you know Mm. um i mean it can get very serious i mean the thing about music is that it's completely indifferent and then we shape it and we give it its meaning you know as we pull it down and say you know this is what it is this is me or whatever you know um charlemagne's more into that stage of music before it comes down i think that sort of he calls it continuous music you know that's always there always going on and um yeah, I I I I feel that too. You know, I, I've although I'm I'm a bit more of a pop tart, <laughs> you know, um, raised in the eighties, whereas he was raised in I don't know nineteen forties Brooklyn, I guess something like that, or fifties. I don't know. I don't know. Um, and just you know, growing up in that scene and meeting people like uh, you know uh, Lamont Young and. Tony mm. Conrad and all those incredible, interesting characters, you know, on the, in that scene. Um, I mean, you know, thinking about it, you know, I, if I'm honest about the things that I was uh, discovering when I was a teenager, you know, it was like, you know, bands like Fugazi and uh, Sunny Day Real Estate and, you know, sort of like uh, the more interesting bands that came out of the American and English, uh, like hardcore scenes, mm. you know, which in a way sort of gave me more of a sort of work ethic and a, and a, um, a sort of an, a, 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 um, a do-it-yourself approach to music, you know, um, which I think is fed into everything as well. Yeah. But, you know, in, in, in you know, post, basically I think I discovered Charlemagne when I was like 20, 21, and I took Kerry to Paris to see him play two nights strumming music on Bosendorfer. And it was a, it really really set us up in terms of our relationship because it was quite an early date for us. Um, but you know, to for me to sort of make that offering and say, you know, I want you to hear this and see this, you know, I think it really gave her, <laughs> you know, for better or worse, an understanding of <laughs> who <laughs> I am and like Did, what I'm. Have you told Charlemagne that story? I'm not sure. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. On the way you think. Whatever, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, Pop Tart, Daniel O'Sullivan. Yeah. Uh, the next track we're going to listen to is Duke Ellington, uh, Portrait of Mahalia Jackson. Daniel there, humming along to Duke Ellington. Uh, we're here on The Quiet Sour. Daniel has picked uh, nine songs for us to listen to. And I can't count how many we've done. So that was around the sixth or seventh. Was it? <laughs> I think it was. Oh, wow. uh, Daniel, why, why have you picked that Duke Ellington piece? Um, I listen to it a lot. Um, 
I don't think it's that highly regarded in terms of like Duke Ellington's catalog, but for me, it's it's the most sort of it, it, it goes deep, you know, for some reason. I think it's to do with like the suspensions, like they're so broad, and you really feel that although there's definitely some motif, there's some sort of recurring theme, it never happens the same way twice. Um, it's that thing about sort of multiple voices, like lots and lots of narratives going on, and you can sort of tune in to any one at the same time, and yet they sound completely unified. Um, I know that um, Julian Priester was involved in this album, who plays on a Sun record. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> join the dots. Yeah, along with you know, played with Sun Ra and various people. Um, you know, but whatever. You know, I think it's uh, it's to do with Duke, really. You know, it was a commission um, responding to uh, um, I think George. What's his name? George Wine. He was like a big jazz promoter at the time, and it was for New Orleans, you know. Um, so, and then of course it's a it's a song of devotion to put to Mahalia Jackson. Mm. Um, it's just so tender, and um, yeah, just you know, I just I can just swim in that sound, you know. I love mm. it. It's like a big blushing cheek. <laughs> <laughs> you want to give it a big kiss? <laughs> Quite. <laughs> I'm, I wanted to talk to you about sort of your, you know, you've played with so many different groups and in different ensembles and, and so on. What is it about that you like? Is it sort of good therapy for the ego? And uh, sort of, does it work for you as a sort of ego control mechanism almost? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think in a way it does. Um, I, I like being part of mach- sort of the uh, machinery, you know, when the machine is obviously producing something interesting and good, you know, and worthwhile. I like just being in there, you know, the co- one of the cogs, you know. Um, and actually, that's where I kind of learn the most. Um, like, that's kind of what's going on now with this heat, you know. And in fact, whenever I've been in a group where <clears throat> I've, in- I've been invited to come f- forward and present material you know write to write material it's never worked out too good um because it's always going to be somebody else's vehicle and yet they're asking for your voice so you bring your voice but then it compromises their voice you see what i mean Mm. unless you've got a very sort of mature band leader i mean not to say that anybody i've worked with is not a mature band leader but you know there's always that risk of treading on toes you know um so i think i've made a sort of a clearer um demarcation between my work you know what i'm going to present as my own work and then work that has been made by somebody else and then you know obviously grumbling fur is a very special uh situation because alex and i obviously both songwriters both artists but um, for some reason there's just a very effortless shorthand between us mm. we don't even need to talk about it you know um, and um, there's very little of that treading on toes business you know um, it's a nice dance it's a dance <laughs> it is a dance and there's kind of awareness that it is a dance and it's all a bit of a game mm. and you know um, you know it's like the uh, 
the Hindu thing. You know, it's all drama. It's all <laughs> yeah, Leela. Call it Leela. The dance. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the next track we're going to play that you brought in for us is Gabriel Yared. Have I said that? I think correctly? so. Yeah, and uh, Betty Erzorg from the Betty Blue soundtrack. So that was Gabriel Yared and Betty Azorg from the Betty Blue soundtrack. So Daniel, you were confessing an early love, yeah. your first pinup. Can yeah. you tell us about this? That's right. Yeah. Well, kind of, kind of um, vicariously through my uncle Damien, who was um, a bit of a, you know, spiritual explorer and a real time, you know, uh, exploring different countries as well. And um, he. Uh, he was going to France a lot and, you know, he brought this movie back and I became a bit obsessed with uh, Beatrice Dahl. I was probably far too young to watch yeah, that How old movie. were you? I don't know. I, I, was I like... didn't see Betty Blue till I was well into my teenage years when it was sort of on late night on the telly and you'd flip the channels to catch it. But... Yeah, that first scene Ooh. as well. Wow. <laughs> Smoking. But no, I was like, I was about eight, I think. Right. Know, oh, yeah, eight or nine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and just, you know, that you know betty blue as i was saying she's kind of like the archetype of the sort of you know femme fatale crazy you know beautiful uh woman and um yeah probably uh set me up some pitfalls along the way (laughs) but um yeah i just i just love i love that music it's total escapism for me you know and synesthesia i mean obviously i think of the movie i think of like the beach that sort of really coppery sand and then the sort of hazy dusky blue skies and then they're painting the houses bright pink Mm. and you know and it's so sort of sumptuous and you know it's a it's a real sort of um yeah just uh it just it just it, it brings me back to a a very sort of safe place i suppose and just you know as i was saying to you earlier that you know in the movie there's that whole thing where was she really there you mm. know and was it all just sort of fodder for his book you know that's that sort of gets implied later on in the movie um um and you know just that you know the idea that the muse was a phantom that she wasn't really there or the possibility that she wasn't really there and it doesn't matter you know um yeah so that and that music is so sort of has that kind of porous thing was so melancholy you know you feel sort of ideas coming from you know a kind of a traditional french sort of you know like a street music or something Mm. but then there's this 80s glossy glassy production you know and all just this strange combination of aesthetics you know that um that really is you know it's just just right for me (laughs) you know pulls me in the whole of your anchors me somehow yeah yeah Yeah. okay we're going to listen to 
Lungfish next. That's a bit of a shared one, is it, with Alex? He's a big yeah. Lungfish oh, yeah. fan. Is that a sort of common ground you two have? Uh, yeah, 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 for sure. For sure, definitely. Yeah, when we were quite a lot younger, it was a big discovery. The whole Discord record scene, you know, as I was saying, that's sort of the interest in Fugazi and and hardcore and all of that. I think Lungfish is the thing that's sort of the... Um, the more sort of perennial voice, the thing that's going to probably continue, you know. Um, yeah. Mm. What is it about you? You talk to me talk about you and Alex. It's like this sort of dance, you know. What is it about Alex that you you really admire? I mean, I I find it fascinating that you two can just be do so many different things. Alex Tucker's just been off in Austria doing a, a piece with a theatre company and he has his own work and his comics and you do all your stuff and it, yeah. it, you come together in Grumbling Fur and make something that's absolutely unique and joyous and, and it's such an odd, odd not an odd couple because you, you kind of make sense but mm. it's not often that people are able to do that what is it about Alex that enables you to do that? Um, I think his... Um well, firstly, because he has such a sort of um, decisive um, aesthetic appreciation, you know, his world is so unique and so his own um, that it's kind of, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, and it was, it's that and it's his openness as well. So it's not an impenetrable world. You know, it's a world that you can kind of wander into, you know, into that mossy glade, you know, that swampy, <laughs> mossy, beautiful world full of gorgeous gnomic creatures and, you know. Um, and, um, yeah, and just I, I've just always loved Alex's sort of uh, voice as well, you know, so natural and unaffected. I think he he's somebody that can really look at like something in nature like a stone or a pebble or something and he'll know how to get to that in, mm. in the in sense I can make a song look like that or I can make a painting that feels like that or whatever you know um, this kind of you feel time and things becoming distressed but without sort of coercion you know um he's just a natural you know mm. he's just a very natural uh person you know um and uh you know we, we we you know we've been through so much together we share you know a lot of interests um and uh yeah he's my you know He's my brother, so he ain't heavy. <laughs> he, is, he is heavy, actually, but in the best way. Terrific stuff. This is Lungfish and Love is Love. So that was fantastic. Lungfish's Love is Love. What a beautiful, affirming pop song, yes. I think, that. Um, so we're pretty much coming to the end of the Quiet Hour special. Uh, we've got one more track left from Judy Sill, who's someone that you've, you and Alex from uh, Grumbling Fur have talked about a lot. Mm -hmm. And I would say, is it an obsession with Judy Sill? <laughs> yeah, probably something verging on that, yeah. And, yeah. and yet she's somebody who's not kind of had that 
rediscovery or that has she not I'd, I'd say in a kind of like more of a mainstream like put out to more people way you know I, I've only I've heard uh, it's always people who really love her yeah that yeah. Um, I've heard f- f- about her from yeah yeah I mean I, I didn't immediately love it you know it took me a while um, and then one day for some reason it just grabbed me um, I think I really started listening I got past her kind of strange nasally you know um, girl at Bible studies class vibe you know <laughs> as Tucker once said um, and then suddenly realized that she was this insane kind of like um, you know combination of like modal baroque music and um, you know American folk music it's just like that's I don't know maybe unprecedented you know um and not only that but she's like a, a like a gnostic scholar you know mm. and she and her lyrics are so wise and um so vulnerable and sad but you know just yeah it, it ticks a lot of boxes for me really really gorgeous um and that thing we were talking about earlier with you know with 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 gnosis you know how a lot of people respond to gnosis as prose rather than poetry where she's she really gets it you know she really gets it like jesus was a cross maker and and this song that we're about to play what what, what song is it we're about uh, to the play? lamb ran away with the crown the lamb ran away with the crown yeah 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 which is kind of set in the garden of eden you know it's like uh once i heard a serpent remark if you try to evoke the spark you can fly through the dark with the red midnight raven to rule the battleground so i drew my sword and got ready but the lamb ran away with the crown you know it's Amazing. like you're ready for duality, ready for the war, mm. but then the lamb ran away with the crown. You know, no reward for that. You know, <laughs> you know the ego can go on all those flights of fancy. You know, but when it comes down to it, it's illusion. You know, um, same with Jesus was a crossmaker. You know, that is again, it's like reducing polarities into some kind of. You know, he was. Um, you know, the, the idea because you know, in Christianity we focus so much on um, the suffering. Yeah, you know, mm. Jesus on the cross, the crucifixion. Oh, we feel it. You know, he did. He died for us. That's not the way to look at it. You know, it's like, actually, you know, I prefer. You know, it's like the way sort of Augustine talks about the crucifixion. Like, you know, it was like a bride going to a bridegroom. You know, it was this sort of uh, uh, voluntary <clears throat> participation in you know in the crucifixion knowing that you know inf- infinity was waiting at the other side mm. fearlessness you know that's how we should be looking at it you know not the the dark sad painful gruesome aspects of it you know it's the it's the elevation it's the knowledge that what comes after you know um and uh, and jesus was a crossmaker what a perfect kind of poetic symbol for that you know um you know and the fact that she's just such an amazing, you know, uh, or, or, you know, the way she orchestrates music is just, just incredible. Okay, well, thanks very much for coming on the Quiet Sour, Daniel. That's been uh, really interesting. It's been great. We we never cool. get we never get anything spiritual on the uh, <laughs> on the radio. So I, 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 you know, you know, I never I, intend I enjoy to. That. But I, I, I enjoy that I very know. much. It's great to see you. Yeah, good to see you. And thank you very much to Catherine Della Rosa who has stepped in at the last minute uh, to produce the show. Uh, hope you get well soon, Seb White. Daniel Wensfeld out. Is it next week? Isn't it June thirtieth? Okay, mm-hmm. yep, yeah. that is next June thirtieth. So look out for that. Daniel Sullivan's Veld and the Grumbling Fern Charlemagne Palestine album 
on important records mm-hmm. is at some point summer as well. That, that's it? like available for pre-order now. Yeah, great. Yeah, and I'm working on this uh, this sort of orchestral music as well for um, Echo Collective. I want to mention that. All oh, right, great <laughs> little plug for myself. You are <laughs> as busy as ever. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, thanks for coming in, Daniel. Let's go and Pleasure. get eat some air outside yeah. uh, from this hot office. Thanks for listening to the Quietest Hour. Do remember, there's the podcast on iTunes, which you sub- can subscribe to and give us a nice top rating five out of five and we will be back next week thank you for listening but I died. once I heard a serpent remark if you try to evoke the spark you can fly through the dark with the red midnight I drew my sword and got ready But the lamb ran away with the crown So I drew my sword and got ready But the lamb ran away with the crown Oh, thank God that's over. Time to put the poof back in its dusty slot. You are enduring the Quietest Hour podcast, and if you're a real glutton for punishment, you can listen to the entire programme featuring all the music via our website at thequietest.com forward slash radio. If you'd like to support what we do, there is a support button on the front page of the website uh, where you can make donations and help us carry on our uh, fantastic work. Or you can just pay us to stop. <laughs>